there and you're very welcome to the programme. Well, coming up in the next hour, celebrating their first Christmas with their new baby girl, writer Stephanie Preisner and her husband Noel Byrne tell me of their joy of becoming parents, having experienced five miscarriages. Also today, ahead of their sold-out concerts in Dublin this Christmas, we'd have great music and chat from the Coronas and celebrated by everyone from Paul Simon to Paul McCartney. I'll be chatting with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and lyricist Paul Muldoon. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on anything featured on the show. You can text us to 51551, email miriam at rt.ie. You can tweet at Miriam O'Call, or you can find me on Instagram at instmiriam. Well, first this morning, last September, broadcaster and writer Stephanie Preisner announced the birth of her first child, a beautiful little girl who she and her husband, Noel, named Rory. Well, their joy at Rory's birth was, however, made all the more special, with the couple revealing their struggle with infertility, having had five miscarriages since 2020. And Stephanie and her husband, Noel Byrne, join me now in the studio. Morning to you both. Morning. Good morning. And you brought Rory in. She is, I have to say, very beautiful little girl. Yeah, we're, I mean, we're a bit biased, but she is she is yeah. quite cute. She's yeah, very cute. She's adorable. Listen, how are you adjusting to life as parents of an almost 12 week old? Um, it's <clears throat> it's a lot. I mean, I'm already conscious kind of sitting here of like if I was on the other end of the radio listening now, I just I remember listening to interviews like this while I was trying to conceive and they're just really, really difficult. Um, and so. I feel a little bit guilty even kind of talking about this because I always listen to people talking about their pregnancies and wish that someone would talk about the miscarriages while they were in them and while they didn't have the happy ending. Mm. And I'm conscious that that's from where I'm speaking. So just to anyone listening who who's not there yet, like I, I see you and I hear you and I'm really sorry. And, uh, you know, you can't tell someone like, you'll get there, just keep trying because mm. you won't maybe, you know. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that from the get go. And the nice thing is, you didn't tell anyone when you were pregnant, or you didn't at all, Stephanie. Because no. you were very big on social media, but, but you didn't say anything. No, I didn't say anything because I didn't say anything for any of the pregnancies. And I guess when you've had as many losses as we've had, we didn't know until until she was here that she was going to be here. And I didn't want to share it. I didn't. I wasn't able for the well-meaning but unsolicited advice and the platitudes and, you know, people saying like, oh, you'll get there, just relax, it'll happen, you know, just keep calm. Because, you know, my obstetrician even said, I can't guarantee you that this is going to end in a live birth, but we'll take it week by week and scan by scan. And so it just felt for my own self-preservation, I I needed to just not not say anything. And from your point of view, Noel, okay, because often men in these situations, they don't get interviewed. You know, you hear about miscarriages and obviously it's horrendous for the the woman involved, but it can be equally bad for the father. Yeah, there's definitely a touch of dads feeling like secondary parents or an accessory in the hospital in that I distinctly remember, I think it was the second miscarriage. It was about seven o'clock in the morning. And this was during COVID. So I couldn't go into the hospital. We were absolutely none the wiser. I think you might have had a, a sense that I woke that up in the morning and felt, this is it. I know something has gone wrong. We'd had a scan, but I just had this feeling. And we went in and uh, no one I, was waiting in the car. I waited in the car and the plan was, you go in, meet the doctor, ring on WhatsApp. And then I could hear the news with the doctor and how everything was going, thinking it would be positive news. But actually, I got a call from Steph and it was that the doctor couldn't find a heartbeat and could I come in? It's 
it's absolutely heartbreaking sitting in the car to get that news. Mm. And there's a sense of being powerless in it. Obviously, men are, I would say, in most cases, less emotionally attached to what's going on in terms of the, the baby, as well as the physical burden is obviously entirely the woman's. So you're left kind of isolated. You're there for your partner and you want to support them. But beyond that, you kind of don't know what to do. So when you go in, obviously you want to support mm-hmm. your partner and, and be there for Steph. But you're almost conscious of, I think, talking about it because it's so involved for the woman. And you almost feel like if I say something as a man or as the dad, that you'll somehow be seen to undermine the position of the woman in all of this or mm-hmm. kind of downplay the woman's role. Dads, I think, definitely are forgotten a little bit mm-hmm. in the conversation and even you don't know where to turn to to talk to people because to go back to Steph's point no one really talks about it that much until afterwards and then dads generally just don't talk about it at all um, so it's it's interesting once you do say it publicly then people come to you and say you know I was feeling the same thing and I didn't want to say anything so it's definitely you know, a thing for dads. No, I think it's a great conversation that you're both having now. Go back then, Stephanie, like, tell me the journey. You, you're here today with beautiful little Rory, your beautiful mm-hmm. little girl. But from the, tell me about the miscarriage, when it started, because you did IVF as well. And I think twice it failed, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, the IVF was sort of an unnecessary burden, but I did it anyway. OK, so I'm kind of bad at, at getting to the point. So if I'm going too far back or whatever, just move me on, OK? Nice. Um, th- it started because actually I have an eating disorder. I had an eating disorder. Sometimes I don't know what tense to use there. But I mi- I didn't have a period for three and a half years because I was anorexic and bulimic. And eventually my endocrinologist said, you know, are you willing to gain weight to get your period back? And I said, no, no, no. And then eventually I said, yes. My period came back uh, after Noel and I were going out for a year in the January. But of course, the eating disorder is like, oh, it's come back. You've gained weight. Stop eating again. So then it wouldn't be there the next month and it would and it wouldn't. And so basically our first pregnancy was unplanned because my cycle wasn't regular. And that was in July of 2020. And then we were, I had a couple of bleeds in that. um, And our consultant was Siobhan Corker in that time. And she was incredible. She'd come in and I'd come in and she'd scan me. And, you know, I know Noel and I were having the baby, but I kind of felt like I was having the baby with Siobhan, you know, because (laughs) she was so supportive. And on one of the scans after a bleed, she said, look, this isn't really what we wanted to see. There's a lot of fluid around the baby and that's indicative of of a chromosomal issue and we're going to need to do some invasive tests. So we had uh, an amniocentesis, which is they put a needle kind of through the stomach into the uterus to get some amniotic fluid to test for the chromosomal issues. And those results, so by that stage I was like 11 weeks and then the results took a week and I was 12 weeks and then the results came back and there was a chromosomal issue um, and we started conversations about whether the fetus was, you know, compatible with life or whether we should be terminating or whether I would miscarry. But while those conversations were ongoing, I was actually in the studio next door to this one mm. recording a, a show with the book show with Rick O'Shea and I got a really bad pain and I didn't say anything. No one knew I was pregnant. I was probably around 13 weeks at this stage, so into the second trimester. And I drove myself to Hollis Street and I texted Noel to say what I was doing and there was still a heartbeat at that stage but I was bleeding and then on Halloween night um, I I had to, uh, the, Siobhan came in and said like look your your cervix is softening and, and this is going to be a miscarriage um, 
but I, I had to labour, so I had to deliver that um, nearly 14-week uh, fetus. That was in October, and that was just horrific because I didn't expect what was coming. I had to deliver it. It was painful. There was a lot of blood. Noel wasn't there. And that was my first pregnancy, so I didn't really know what was happening. And then I kind of became obsessed with becoming pregnant again. I just... Yeah. Go on now. It's... It's one of those things where when that's your first experience, it's hard to get past that. First of all, that becomes the point you need to get past for anything else. But then you've only had a negative experience. So that's your feeling going into it a second time. And for us, that was building and building and building because it happened again and again and again. So it really just felt like our only experience of pregnancy was a negative one. Mm. And that makes it increasingly difficult. And you do get to the point where it's like, I don't know if we can do this again. Because it's an emotional and physical drain And on because both of us. we had gotten to the second trimester, it's not as if, oh, you get that first scan and you get the relief, you know? The relief used to last. Then, So Siobhan, then that consultant, she went on maternity leave, ironically, and we started seeing Jenny for the subsequent pregnancies and the pregnancy on Rory. And she was just incredible. Like, I would marry her if I could. She, <laughs> she Because she was so straight down the line. Like, she was saying, like, I can't guarantee this is going to be fine. Because what you don't want is someone saying, you have your nine-week scan, I can see a heartbeat, you know, we'll see you at 40 weeks and we'll pop the child out because it's just not like that and she understood first of all I'm autistic and so like autistic people to be general all autistic people are different but autistic people tend to thrive in circumstances where things are predictable and Mm -hmm. they have routine and being pregnant is in it's the most powerless you're ever going to be you cannot know what is going to happen and so with the perinatal mental health team the psychologist there and Jenny we were able to remove as many of the unknowns as we could so that I could somehow tolerate the unknowns that were inevitable. This is in Hollis Street. This is yeah. in Hall in the National Trinity Hospital, yeah. And um, so I could never really get to the, like, so we got then to the 20-week scan with Rory and it was like, okay, so we see she's got kidneys, that's great, and, you know, whatever. But <laughs> They're but, useful. But yeah. on the way out of the hospital, the reassurance would be gone because I'd be like, well, now, I, what if I miscarry now? Or what if something has happened in the interim on the way down the stairs? Um, so tolerating that anxiety for nine months meant that I just cannot relate to women who say, I just love being pregnant. I imagine you like being pregnant, do you, Miriam? I didn't mind it. You yet. didn't mind it, yet, but I just can't. I just can't. It was the worst time in my life. Like, But that's obviously Noel, I suppose, because you were so worried. As you said, you'd had five miscarriages. So I suppose, Noel, every day you'd have to reassure her and just act normal. And you were probably worried too. Absolutely. The worry was there, but, you know, a part of me felt like my role was, you know, that evolutionary protect and provide situation. So it was trying to... Be cognizant of the worries that she was obviously feeling and feeling anxious while also having some confidence that it was going to go well. I think you were convinced that it was going to go well before I was. Like, because I think so. I wouldn't, I refused to like buy any clothes, buy a buggy, do like I just didn't want to buy anything because I didn't mm-hmm. want to have this car seat empty if I didn't come home with a baby. Yeah. And Noel, like, and Jenny as well, were like, okay, so you, you do now need to pack a bag. Like, it's <laughs> just now 34 <laughs> weeks, like, you need to do something. Um, and but I kind of wasn't convinced, but you you were able to hold that. For sure, but there was a part of it feeling that you were jinxing it, you know, that the universe was going to turn on you and be like, well, that was nice while it lasted, but and it's not going to work this time either. That's something that really annoys me about positivity and manifesting and stuff. This, this rhetoric that started that like, you can put something out to the universe and you'll just get it. And if you think negatively, 
that's what's wrong. Like you can't jinx, you can't cause a mix, miscarriage by buying a buggy. You can't cause a miscarriage by planning mm. for the future. And all of these people who say like just be positive about it. Like you're allowed to be anxious and you're not going to jinx your pregnancy, jinx your pregnancy by being but I found that like being on social media, all that sort of toxic positivity, that's why I kind of didn't mention anything. And even now I'm finding it really difficult to be a new mother and all of that rhetoric again of being positive and enjoying the newborn snuggles makes me feel like am I the only one who finds this no. absolutely hellish? And we'll come hellish. back to that. You said also, I think, you liken being pregnant with Rory, your beautiful little girl, to being on the road again after having had a bad accident. I mean, what do you mean by that? I meant that like, so you get up in the morning and you get in your car and you drive to work and you don't even think about it. But if you've had a bad car crash, you get in the car and you're terrified and at every junction you're terrified and then you get to work and you're terrified of having to get back into the car to drive home. And I just felt like, I don't know if I have the energy to do this again. I don't know if I have the energy to wake up every morning and be like, oh my God, have I felt her moving in and out of the hospital for scans because I couldn't. Like as an autistic person, sometimes I find it difficult to feel what's happening in my body. So you know, feeling hunger, feeling like I need to go to the toilet. Those sensations are sometimes mixed up for autistic people. And so I didn't often feel movement. And so that became difficult. And it was like being, you know, it was like being on the road again after (laughs) after a car crash. And then other people's pregnancy announcements felt like, you know, when you're at the airport and the bags are coming out on the carousel yeah, and everyone's getting their luggage and walking away and you're like, where is my bag? It just felt like, when am I going to be pregnant? When is it going to happen for me? And it just, you know, it, it, it really gets in on your mental health. And I, and I hope that people out there who are pregnant know that perinatal mental health is, is, a, is an area of research and, and there is support out there in the maternity hospitals because I'd be absolutely lost without Hollis Street and the support that they give me and continue to give me postpartum. And I know from interviewing you before, you loved your grandmother, Eileen. And I know she went to heaven three years ago. Did you talk to her when you were pregnant because you used to rely on her a lot didn't you yeah I, I kind of talk to her all the time even now like like Rory's been sick this week and we had to go to Temple Street and like big shout out to Temple Street they're amazing mm-hmm. at what they do but you know just kind of driving in being like please Nana like first of all of course make Rory be okay but like please don't make there be a long wait and please you know just <laughs> trying to keep in contact with her and I do think about like I bought my house where it is because it was in close proximity to her and so I drive past it sometimes and I'm like oh god if you know if she was here I know we'd be I'd be going up to her to watch the Today Show while Nola's at work with the baby you know and it, it's lonely it's really lonely being in Dublin without family and having a baby and I totally understand now why people move home from foreign countries to be near family after babies What was the moment like when Maury was born? Well, it's an interesting one, again, to somewhat generalise it for dads in that, you know, you're expecting this big wave of love, right? So firstly, when Maury was born and... I had a C-section. Yeah, so the baby was handed to me and it is very much like, here you go, off you go. And you're just, (laughs) oh my God, I don't know what to do with her. Am I doing this right? Am I holding it correctly? Um, But actually... And it's it's definitely not talked about. And again, I've had dads say this to me. So for dads, because to go back to the original point, we don't have that physical connection with the baby as it's growing over the nine months. There wasn't, for me anyway, there wasn't this big rush of love. It was very much, you know, this is my child is aware of that and I wanted to make sure she was well and, and protected and safe and fed and all of those things. But it was a solid eight weeks before I felt like I had a real love and connection with Rory. Mm. 
And it turns out that it's completely normal because it is essentially a stranger who's wandered into our space and our relationship and I'm still getting to know them whereas Steph and mothers generally have this bond building. I didn't feel it either though. I have to say I did not feel a wave of love and I used to cry. It's changed now. She's going to be 12 weeks. It's changed now but I used to cry into my dinner every evening thinking I cannot do another night of this. What like now they don't smile until they're like two months yeah. which is like evolutionary hell like make them smile from the get go it makes it so much easier if they can smile so she's just this really demanding high stakes Tamagotchi that you have to keep alive and she's literally sucking the life out of you because I was breastfeeding and it was just like those first few weeks and I was not expecting it and if it wasn't for you know, places like the La Leche League or the lactation consultants that we hired or my friend Lisa, like I wouldn't still be breastfeeding because it's the hardest thing I've ever done. But I just expected this wave of love to hit me and for us to go home and snuggle on the couch and watch movies and, you know, people would bring us food. And it's just, it was just like days upon days where I was in the same clothes and I hadn't showered and I'd forgotten to eat. And I just was not expecting that at all. I don't have any sisters. Maybe that was the thing. I hadn't seen pregnancy from that side um, or new parenthood, but it was absolute hell. Like, And it and gets a little bit easier now, but I'm still not through it. Like there are days I, I, I you know, I'd, I'd stop. I think <laughs> your honesty is great though, because an awful lot of newborn mothers feel exactly like you do. But I think... Mm. Why don't people, they say it though? I think we're afraid that if you said it, no one would do it. Because <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. It's more than pretty tough, Miriam. Like, you've done it eight times. It's hell. And people were messaging me on pu- publicly being like, oh, she's so cute. Enjoy the snuggles. And then privately being like, oh, it's hell. Like, it is awful. You're exhausted. It's the worst time of your life. And I'm like, please, can we say this publicly so that it's not that people won't do it but when they are doing it mm. they know okay mm. it's supposed to be hard like this mm. child needs everything from me everything like they can they're useless they can do nothing like <laughs> human babies are born way before they're able to sustain themselves because if their heads and brains got any bigger they wouldn't be able to fit out so they're really really not able for the world and you know I felt guilty that she'll only sleep on us but of mm. course she'll only sleep on us because if she was in, if we were back in the caveman days and we put her lying on the ground like she'd get eaten so of course she wants to sleep on us and feed from us And but I just hadn't heard it before and so I spent so many weeks being like, oh my God, our baby is broken. She won't sleep in a crib. She won't go in a buggy. She won't go in a car seat. She hates all of that. I'm trapped here. And then eventually, as I started to speak out loud about it, people were like, oh no, mine doesn't sleep either too. And mine, you know, and you kind yeah. of, you kind of want these little wins where you're like, oh, mine sleeps a half an hour longer than yours. So that's fine. You know, and that community, that village that it takes a child, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. That village is gone. Like I live on, we live on our own in a in Cabra, and there's no v- village that knows that I've had the baby and that's going to help. And it's it's just been eye opening in a kind of a sad way. And I think if I have friends who have babies from now on, I'll be very different mm. in my response to them, knowing what I know. How have you found it? Well, I think in the in the first five or six weeks, it felt particularly hard because so we're combination feeding, so the formula it turned out was incorrect. She and has an intolerance. She has an intolerance to, to lactose. So it just, the nights were really difficult. Mm. Now it's easy to say, well, we were giving her the wrong food. Um, so that, you know, we weren't helping her cause. So 
and we also we know her better now so we know the little cues when she's tired or when she's hungry whereas before again you know you're reading this real general advice being like they'll only be awake for 60 minutes and you need to put them back to sleep we were trying to force the child back to sleep <laughs> now we're like well she's not tired so we're not going to try and get her to go to sleep but at the time it was like 2am being like why won't she sleep but now you know we have a better handle on it it was probably hard for you as well though because you were also support like I really I don't know if it was just a hormonal plummet as well, but I really struggled and you were kind of supporting me and supporting her and there was no one supporting you. So that yeah, was all I mean, <clears throat> I didn't feel like that at the time. Again, I suppose I felt like this is just something I had to do and you just kind of get on with it. Um, but it's it feels much more fulfilling now in a way, I suppose, because she's, you know, there's, there is that love there and, and sense of mm. seeing her grow and thrive and everything. So it, it's definitely gotten easier. Our listeners are there. I'll give you the huge reaction. Maura goes, so delighted for Steph and Noel. I can empathise with their pain and I totally understand Stephanie's reticence. Every best wish for the new family. Another says, best wishes to you both on the birth of your daughter. After four miscarriages, I now have a wonderful son and two grandchildren worth the wait. Um, another person says, listening to Stephanie here with tears flowing, I can relate to every word she's saying after seven IVFs and six miscarriages and remember every minute of that struggle and the tentative joy of the pregnancy and the early months after the baby arrives. Fair play to Stephanie and Noel for highlighting the struggles that so many couples are going through, especially hard watching people all around your Christmas being so happy and your heart is broken for what you don't have. One more. Steph is wonderful telling it exactly as it is. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks, Miriam. And thank you to the listeners. Yeah, well, thank you both for coming in. And uh, she's outside there, I have to say. She's the most beautiful little baby <laughs> And girl. shout out to our friend Clelia, who's minding her Clelia outside Murphy, <laughs> star actor, who star also, actor, part-time childminder. <laughs> Thanks so much, Nolan and Stephanie. I wish you the very best. Thanks thank you. We'll take a break. Sunday with Miriam on RTE Radio 1.